0: It's Thursday, July 13th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist, I'm Mike Pasca. Chipotle has developed a prototype of an avocado processing robot. It cuts, it cores, it peels avocados before they are hand mashed to create their signature guacamole. This will help the company prep the 4.5 million cases of avocados they use. That's more than hundred million pounds of avocados each year. I'm not sure that is measuring the weight of the pit or not, but it's a lot of avocados. So what's this contraption called? KMAX Sacramento has details. Uh, the future really does look brighter. Chipotle is testing a robot to help make guacamole. The best thing about this is the name. The autocado. <laughs> <K-U-T-L. laughs> autocado. So it is not the best thing. It is—I don't want to overstate this—an horrific missed opportunity. As soon as I heard about the automated avocado, I say, "I got it! I got it!" The avoc auto. The avocado. The avoc auto. The avoc auto. It's the avocado. If the thing were an avocado that worked. Automatically, I might say, oh yeah, that's the autocado, but it's not. It's a machine that takes the avocado, there's your avoc, and supplies automation. There's your avoc auto. CBS affiliate WNEM in Bay City, Michigan rolled on with their coverage of the news. This was one of those items with the same clip and script pushed out to all the network affiliates. But what the different anchors do with that basic script and those clips can differ. Listen to the conclusion WNEM landed on.
1: This is so awesome, and I know the workers are probably just rejoicing because cutting an avocado is actually a lot of work. (laughs) Peeling it, taking the thing, the pit out, that's a lot.
0: As someone who worked at a Mexican restaurant.
1: Oh, I bet you can relate then. And we had to prep the guacamole
0: each morning. (laughs) I
1: bet it was a lot.
0: That's literally my only job in the morning because it took like two hours. Wow. Two hours just to make a few containers for the day. Wow. So, yeah, avocado for the win.
1: Avocado for the win
0: human beings for the loss. Trace, I'm going to assume the male host there, of WNEM, who used to work in the avocado gutting industry, did correctly assess the labor savings involved, but he incorrectly defined who the labor represented in that situation. The labor is you, Trace, or would have been you back in the day. But not all network affiliate happy talk is the same, because over there, back on the West Coast, on Good Day Sacramento, the host took a shot at discerning the implications of this cobotic, that's what they call the robot, which works with humans. That is not at all an Orwellian name for a robot that works alongside a person, which is to say the only person who hasn't gotten fired after the robot injected its services into the business. Anyway, I got to say, got to. I gotta say, I gotta hand it to the Sacramentans. They nailed it. Correct, Mr. Cody Stark. Actual name. Good take, good day. Keep Cody Stark on board. As far as his Bay City counterpart, well, it's a win for AI, a pretty good argument, which may well soon gut and pit local reporting. Consider it a news of On the show today, actor strike, UPS strike, pesca strike. But first, We're joined once more by John McWhorter, a professor of linguistics at Columbia, New York Times columnist, podcaster. He's also a frequent guest on the Glenn Lowry show, The Glenn Show, check him out there. This is our second part of McWhorter's Quarters, our branded discussion segment, and the term that comes up now among the terms, toxic masculinity. We'll also talk about how interruptions contribute, contribute to conversations. You know what I'm saying? and also how words themselves are the, not just the means of advancing a cause, they've become the cause. John McWhorter, up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender.
1: Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
0: We're joined once more by linguist John McWhorter. And to John, I put this question. Toxic masculinity as a phrase. I sense that maybe it's because the phrase was so successful that it really took off. And it took off in a way that the toxicity seemed to subsume the masculinity. And among some quarters, I think quarters that McWhorter writes for or certainly (laughs) circulates in, there is the strong implication that all masculinity is toxic. So it's not like a phrase, the hard sciences, because when people say that, you know, oh, as opposed to sociology, or the softer sciences, right? It's more like a phrase, the electric guitar. Whereas it's not quite technically true that all guitars are electric guitar, but if you say I play the guitar, most people will assume it is an electric guitar, another example of that kind of phrase. A new suit of clothes, I no longer have to say of clothes. I could just say a new suit. People will know that it means of clothes. So why is it, John, that some expressions take on this sheen as to subsume and not just describe as an adjective the whole?
1: Yeah, that is a very interesting analogy. And yes, it's getting to the point where toxic masculinity is beginning to be used as you know the default kind of masculinity. This is what is inherent to all of us as men. Anything that we do that involves any kind of assertion or presumption. Of course, we have to wonder what is femininity. But yes, the term has has broadened, as linguists put it. And it starts with very valuable lessons. I actually learned about 30 years ago some very important lessons about radical feminism. And radical feminism, frankly, was quite extreme if you read Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon. But still, there were things that one wished to know and that one should have known. But there's an extent to which someone with the hammer, everything to them is a nail. And I have to tread carefully here because I, I I, don't want to sound dismissive, but there's a happy warrior aspect to human beings. And you can enjoy pointing out the downsides of old-fashioned masculinity, the sorts of things that both you and I need to think about. And then get to the point where... Well, you can say that about every second thing that we say or do is toxic masculinity in that way. And it's tempting because, of course, part of saying anything is not only referring to it. You don't just say moon. You say, oh, look, the moon is out so early. What about the moon? That's a kind of assertion. A lot of communication is you are asserting what you wish to point out as opposed to what somebody about 15 seconds ago wished to point out. That's a lot of what conversation is. Well, there's a short step from that to claiming that anybody who breaks in at the half sentence point is being a toxic male. When actually you can look at women conversing where they interrupt one another in exactly the same way. Yes, that can get there. You've discovered something. There's something called toxic masculinity and there is. But next thing you know, that's all we are. That's something you could almost have predicted once that term started.
0: Right, right. And just on that point, interruptions are misunderstood. There, There is a form of – in fact, it's the more common form of conversationally additive in, interruptions. Yes. And without those kind of interruptions, the joy of being in person and one of the detriments of Zoom, it adds to everyone's understanding and conversation. But if you went and tracked sentences, you would see certain people were interrupting. And I don't know if this is gendered to you know use that term. But – Interruption per se is not a bad thing. It's not a disruptive thing, and it's not a toxic thing.
1: There's a such thing as interrupting rudely. Of course. Yes. But yes. the idea that conversation goes the way it does in Henry James novels, that's an idealization. And in many, many cultures, interruption is very much the norm. Nobody finishes a sentence. And that's been said not only of cultures we might consider exotic, but there's work that says that American urban Jews interrupt as affection, as a sign of engagement. That's what you do. And so, yeah, interruption is that sort of thing. There is documentation that men interrupt more than women. However, it's getting old. A lot of that work was done in the late 20th century, and gender norms are blending and changing, and that doesn't hold up as much now as it used to. Interruption in normal conversation, unlike what you and I are doing right now, is normal, and it's very easy to read it as Toxic maleness, if that's what you're waiting to establish, but it would be interesting to also compare how often did women interrupt one another and even other men yeah, it's, yeah, I, language can be idealized,
0: yes, and is' an interruption not only that, but is an interruption there are some great interruptions without interruption we wouldn't have I think the greatest conversations ever <laughs> they're not all colloquies no um so here's another big issue I was thinking of. It <laughs> seems so often we can't get the words right when saying agreeing on what to call movements. I- Ibram Kendi, you mentioned he likes anti-racist. Seems a little unfair to me that I have to be, if I'm not in that category, what am I by default? The New Yorker calls the group fair, which I think you have some affiliation with. They call that anti-woke. As I read that, I, I said to myself, would they apply that label to another group in a similar situation? And I keep thinking of it or it keeps getting proposed or depicted as the stumbling block but once we get past these linguistic issues we're going to get to the real issue. But I have been thinking about this more and more and more and I am becoming more and more convinced that this isn't the stumbling block to get past. The things to call whatever the real issues are, that increasingly I believe are the real issues, is the real issues. is the end to many of these movements, let us change the language around the movement. Uh, Do you agree that, uh, maybe I've come to this later than you have, you've been observing longer, but is this more common that just the words are what we're arguing about as opposed to something underlining the words? It's funny, there's a,
1: a dog that doesn't bark, so to speak, when you read about progressive movements in even the recent past, which is that, very on-fire people were much, much less concerned with what you call things than we are today. And it can seem so natural today to think that— To we- interrupt, to interrupt, did—do you know, did the
0: civil rights movement argue over the phrase the civil rights movement?
1: <laughs> I am unaware <laughs> that anybody had a problem with that. And of course, during that time, the idea was that you don't say Negro, you say Black. People argue that quite fiercely. That was one thing. And for example, in the feminist movement, there was the new word, Ms. That was useful, and that's one thing. It happened, but it wasn't the main meal the way it is now, you read about, you know, Ida B. Wells, you read about Lorraine Hansberry, A. Philip Randolph, those people would be mystified today at how much attention we spend to what terminology is. And some of it is taking a cue from the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis in anthropology, with the idea being that the words that you use, the way you pattern sentences channel your thoughts. And as with things that are that sexy and portentous, it's one of those things where it's true, but to a much lesser extent than we might suppose. And really, what you have to change is the thought, unless you're dealing with extremely stark, obvious things that are already happening. And so, for example chairperson instead of chairman, chairwoman. That makes sense. Why are you going to always call it a chairman? But we started saying chair when the feminist movement was well advanced and the idea was a rather unassailable one that women should not be thought of as the second sex. That was kind of easy. But we're dealing with much finer things now, such as don't say master bedroom because somebody might think of slavery. These are not things that any majority is going to be expected to truly feel. And You know, honestly, Mike, I think some of it is kind of lazy. I think it's encouraged partly by the fact that we have a kind of a technology where we can talk and write at each other more than we used to. But the idea that the way you create change is by making people uncomfortable putting things in certain ways. is kind of easy, as opposed to going out and knocking on doors or making a sequential argument. So I worry about it. Too Too much word policing. And as I always say, it's not that people are enjoying making people angry. It's people thinking that this is one of many ways of creating change in the world, but it's suspiciously easy. And also it can be taken so far that you're channeling energy into something that you would better be putting into actually trying to change conditions in the world rather than the labels that we put on them. Well, uh, I can think of a couple,
0: I don't know if they're counter arguments, but, add on points one is when Ida B Wells is writing she, the stakes were so high and she might have i mean we could possibly come across a uh, writing where she said look whatever you want to call anti lynching call it that just stop the lynching mm-hmm. right the important thing is not really the language we have to stop these you know utter acts of evil and so maybe the temperatures come down and we have uh, let's call it the luxury to look at the words because the gravest injustices have been eliminated. I don't know what an activist of I would, would agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Another point of it, and I actually totally agree with um, the the fact that we're so much of our experience is mediated through communication, that of course we're gonna start focusing more on communication. But I also wonder if it's that, well, when it comes to say, reforming society and doing anything to- Um, compensate or make up for America's horrible history with indigenous people. That's all but impossible. What is possible is to change the words around it, to change Native American to indigenous person, which was once American Indian, to say land acknowledgments, which doesn't give anyone back their land. It's just a saying. Maybe it's If uh, social movements need victories, and so many of the victories have been of a linguistic variety, let's just be like the drunk who's looking for the car keys under the lamp rather than where he lost them.
1: (laughs) The hardest thing about some of these things, though, is um, when a certain group is speaking for a group of people who have been grievously abused. But the people themselves don't necessarily feel the same way. And so one of the hardest things, and this is something I experienced at UC Berkeley too because the linguistics department has a really important and vigorous um, program to help save Native American languages. You learn that you're supposed to say Native American and then you find that frankly most of the Native Americans you meet say Indian. So what do you do? And you gradually realize that they don't mind if you say Indian either. And in fact, that Native American sounds a little chilly and clinical. And yet, if there wasn't a Native American in the room, you would be afraid to say Indian. Those are the things where I start to worry because I think that we're talking about a group of people who say cis-hetero and Latinx as opposed to most people who don't know what a cis-hetero is. And the people themselves, Latinos, for example, very often still say Hispanic. I was taught Hispanic was practically a slur around 1989. And then noticing that people of that ethnicity use it quite a lot. That is not the sort of thing that anybody in 1940 would have expected, you know, this idea that highly educated people have to talk in a certain way, regardless of how less educated people living real lives refer to themselves. There's just, you know, where do you draw the line? But there is an excess in these things.
0: Yeah, yeah. You have to code switch, but you're switching away from a language that could actually be understood by the very peoples you're supposed to be expressing Mm -hmm. sympathy towards. Yeah, yeah. Does this play into your theory about how wokeism or social justice and the language thereof is religion? Um, I'm thinking of prayers. I'm thinking of cants. I'm thinking of religious language. And, you know, do you see see that applying to this, that framework applying to this situation?
1: You know, I'm going to give you something that I don't think I've ever said before, which is that I am definitely, I am definitely convinced that, extreme punitive wokism not just understanding a hard left perspective but being willing to push people out of out of windows on the basis of it that is a religion i really do believe that it probably sits in all the exact same centers of the brain the fact that it often doesn't make logical sense is an indication that we're talking about faith rather than reason in those particular cases but there are times when a little religion can be a nice thing and i must say that that the place acknowledgements with Native Americans, I get that. I have spent my life looking at parking lots and, you know, Neiman Marcus and my own house and thinking people lived here and they were living perfectly legitimate lives. They thought of this place as much theirs, as much hallowed with their memories as I think of it now. They're gone. There's nothing to be done about it. It's it's you know injustice that's unthinkable, but it happened, it's over, it's it's ineradicable. The idea that you might say before you do something on that land, these are the people who lived here. No, it doesn't fix anything. And yes, there's a certain performativeness to it. But for example, I'm sitting right here, I'm I'm in a bungalow colony in Monroe, New York. Native Americans lived here, and now there's this little bungalow and there's a swimming pool about 10 yards from me. There's nothing to be done about it. But I like to think that there were people who lived here. That's the best we can do. That is a kind of prayer. That is like crossing my chest. I'll take it. However, as with everything, these sorts of things can be taken too far, especially when it's punitive. Like, for example, if you say, well, here live the Lenape, you're not hurting anyone. What's bad is if you say, if you don't say, here live the Lenape, we're going to make sure you lose your job. That's where it's a bad kind of religion. Bungalow, from the Hindi word Bengali. Ah, not
0: bad. Belonging to
1: Bengal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, also, defenestration, which you mentioned, I find it puzzling that of all the ways to kill people, that's one that has a specific word in the language. Maybe it's
1: just so fun to say. I don't know. Because, and because it's such a vivid image. Yes. That's right. And and maybe yeah. it's
0: because of there was this historic event called the defenestration of Prague. Right. Which...
1: You're right. The yeah. check thing. Yes. Yeah. The
0: check thing. Check yourself <laughs> before you wreck yourself from a third story window, I would say. <laughs> what I find is that we in general, uh, euphemistically uh, add words to more blunt phenomenon to soften them. So rape becomes sexual assault, but sometimes it goes in the opposite direction, right? Confirmed bachelor becomes gay because we realize that by replacing something gauzy for something direct, we're embracing the thing that's direct in a delicate condition becomes pregnant. (laughs) So this is my question. Are we constantly going in both directions? Is there a theme and pattern to when we expand the number of words that we take to describe something plain and the other times when we shrink the number of words that we use to describe something so that we describe
1: it more plainly? I think the main issue is that one way that we accomplish what you could call a kind of holy test, but often it is a desire to train people not to think of unpleasant or delicate things, is that you You use more words. And this is linguistically universal. I'm thinking, I don't know why we keep talking about Native Americans, but I'm thinking about the Native American language Zuni, where in the elevated language, you refer to mundane things with phrases as opposed to the, the, the just, just one word. And so... My favorite example of this is racial preferences, changing standards. You call it affirmative action. What in God's name does affirmative action mean? We're so used to it, but that that's a, a euphemism. Enhanced interrogation for what was clearly torturing people 20, 20 years ago. This is what you do when you don't want people to think about things. Pregnant, Existed, you know, forever, but in a delicate condition was because of the idea that you weren't supposed to directly address pregnancy in open culture until relatively recently. Now you just say preggers, whatever. But even expecting, well, expecting what? That that was a, a euphemism. That's normal. That's what people do. And the issue is when you're going to start using more direct. Terms, but it does. It, it tends to interfere with discussion when it's about important things, such as enhanced interrogation or affirmative action. Who would be against affirming action? But the issue is what's actually going on, and how do you really feel about it? Linguists
0: love Zuni, right? <laughs> I read a lot about Zuni in linguistic texts. How they have cons, they have words for concepts we didn't even know to have concepts.
1: Zuni is a lot of fun. It's a, it's a whole story in many ways. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Zuni is a vibe.
0: So says John McWhorter. John McWhorter is a columnist for the New York Times, and he, he has been uh, engaging in an act of education and self-confession for many years in the podcast Lexicon Valley. If you want to know what is going on in John's life, listen to Lexicon Valley. You'll also get an excellent education in words and songs. John, as always, thank you. Thank you once again.
1: Mike, thanks so much for that plug and glad we could talk.
0: And now, the spiel. There's a big strike. If you thought Writers Guild or SAG-AFTRA and the actors, you're not wrong. You've just been bamboozled by the media-entertainment complex. Think less glitzy, think less the sparkle of Tinseltown and more the earthiness of Big Brown. UPS workers are set to strike, ABC News lays out just how big a deal that is. A walkout would have ripple effects throughout the economy, with the company employing more than 330,000 workers and delivering millions of packages each day. The value of the goods it delivers annually has been estimated at 6% of the U.S. economy. I like the number of workers stat. I like the 6% of the economy stat. That's cool. The millions of packages detail, not much of a detail. So you're saying six per worker? Kinda low, unimpressive. PBS reports the number as 24 million packages a day. That's more like it. I think the UPS workers are in a pretty good bargaining position. I base it on my understanding of supply and demand, where we are in terms of labor supply, the demand for this very profitable company to continue supplying us with packages, and just how sympathetic an argument the workers are making. Sean O'Brien, head of the Teamsters, made the case on Fox what do you tell folks
1: at home who don't understand the details of what you're arguing over that they might not down the road get their packages or worse well look I mean that's up to UPS and if
0: UPS doesn't uh... Um, reward our, our members, then you know they'd be causing the strike and the work stoppage. But the general pu- public has to understand that through the pandemic, the toughest times, our members, their UPS uh, men and women who deliver their packages, and the unsung heroes, the part-timers that loaded those packages, were never rewarded. They were never uh, compensated correctly. They went out there and risked their lives. Uh, and we hear about all these post-pandemic shortfalls in society. The one positive thing with e-commerce, especially UPS, they've seen a hundred percent growth. They've made $100 billion. Their stockholders have been rewarded by 50%. There's been lucrative stock options given to CEOs, and our members haven't uh, shared in any of those uh, wins. So it's time now, and uh, it's up to UPS whether they want to do the right thing by their employees or not. So there are three things that convince me that Sean O'Brien has the better side of this argument than the nameless, faceless corporate exec who declined to go on TV. That, by the way, that's number one. That's the first thing. He talked, the exact wouldn't. The fact that they're making the debate is better than not. Two, there's the substance of the case, which you just heard a part of. Three, that it was on Fox. Neil Cavuto offering a sympathetic hearing to labor over management. Sure, there's the Okay, sir, but what about the customers, customers who might not understand, who might be so stupid as to be confused as to where the packages might be coming from? Is there a profit-making entity behind it? Are the workers delivering them, or is it elves? What do you say to those people? And remember to speak very slowly, possibly use hand puppets. But as much as the UPS workers have crafted a narrative that the public will wind up as sympathetic to, I do not know that the professional crafters of narrative have done the same. I think I understand the issues of the Writers Guild strike pretty well. I have, in my life, been both a member of the Writers Guild and of SAG-AFTRA joining their strike today. I am currently on strike against both companies after signing a deal with Disney. I can't disclose the details of the deal, but let's just say I'm on episode 6 of Andor. And I didn't expect that ragtag group of mercenaries to pull off that heist through guile on the element of surprise. Now that was a bad joke. That was a hack joke. You know, the old joke, I just signed the cable deal, so yeah, I'm getting HBO. That's the joke. But now that joke is frozen. That joke can't be improved upon because the writers, who could possibly improve upon the joke, though they haven't over the years, those writers are on strike. Is that so bad? For a few months now, there has been no Kimmel, Colbert, Myers, Fallon, Life seems to go on. Am I yearning for the trenchant insight that Donald Trump's a ridiculous fellow? Here's specifically how. Am I wondering where these hosts land on the important issues of the day, like how hot it is out there? And if I heard that Meghan and Harry were chased through the streets of New York? Yeah, it was by Spotify executives wanting back their money. I did not hear that because the late night shows were not on to joke about that, and that's okay from the consumer point of view, just in terms of pure consumption, I think it's pretty clear we all needed a content purge, at least a pause. We got our content binge during the pandemic, all those shows that you just resign yourself, you'd never watch, you watched them all. So we were all basically caught up. There was a glut, and then the supply chain started churning them out again. Succession was good. I like Fleischman is in trouble. Okay, and then the shows started building up, you started saying, do I need to watch these? Do I need to watch those? I find myself watching them. And I think we need a pause. Maybe we need to go on a content fast. It is okay. You want to know why? It's because narrative is a drug. It convinces us that the dramatic event is the likely event, because that always is what seems to happen in drama. Convinces us that people, humans, who of whom you know many, that they have character arcs that they change over time, given different circumstances, convinces us that there's justice, or if that there's injustice, that injustice will be avenged. Also evil. There's lots and lots of evil within narrative. There's conniving tricksters, there's charismatic madmen. They're just compelling human beings who are more interesting and more well-spoken and certainly better looking than the real humans that we all are forced to interact with, these arcless humans. I don't think I've ever actually met an evil person in real life. There's a debate. Are people evil? I don't know. I don't know that I've met one. I've met, mm, I don't even think I've met a mastermind. I mean, I've met unkind, cruel people. I've met geniuses. But these geniuses don't generally have a plan for world or business world domination. Any any sort of domination Actually, I've met people with lots of power and lots of ego and lots of success. But always there is a general incoherence, the general incoherence of humanity to them. They're just getting through the day, mostly. Not in a good way, maybe in a very efficient way, certainly sometimes in a highly remunerative way. But that's what they're doing. They don't always dress well. Or if they do dress well, they will often wear discernible logos and not worry if the rights to those logos have cleared. I say it's okay to take a break. It's okay to take a break from narrative. Even as we have in our narrative shifted from hero to anti-hero as the typical main character, even the anti-heroes, they're always on a journey. They're always on a quest. Just when one obstacle is overcome, there is another. Every time there's a countdown to something bad, it always gets to at least two before the situation is resolved. Good-looking people are much funnier than the good-looking people you know in narrative. Funny people's jokes are never drowned out by a lawnmower or misheard. It never rains for no reason. In narrative, no one ever has to pause things to go to the bathroom unless there's a reason to go to the bathroom. A reason having nothing to do with digestion and everything to do with the conversation they're about to overhear or the fact that they get out of the room or maybe some hilarious bit of bathroom ribaldry. In real life, clothes don't always reflect a person's character. Sometimes, I would say almost all the time, people just wear things. And the things they wear, I mean, it might tell you something about their place on the economic ladder, but it doesn't really tell you that much about the person. I'm not even talking about the things that are obviously concocted situations, of the guy who doesn't know how to disassemble a bomb being asked to do so. Why are the bombs always with a red wire and a blue wire? Or the hostage taker mocking the lawman saying, Don't do it. You don't have the guts. And the lawman saying, in a similar situation. Give me one reason I shouldn't shoot you right now. And the other guy saying, I'll give you a million reasons is a briefcase of cash that's dangled over a ravine that almost never happens in the course of day-to-day life. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm even talking about the best, the most quote-unquote realistic, the embodiment of artistry, why we tell stories. I'm even talking about that type of narrative. You might even choose to interpret what I'm saying as solely talking about that type of narrative. It's still true. It's still a drug. It's still designed to affect our central nervous systems, and it does. It can really warp us watching too much of it, imbibing more story than we were meant to as a species. So I'm fine with a pause. Really, the delivery of narrative is not an unalloyed good thing. The delivery of packages basically is unless the packages contain old DVDs of Kurt Russell movies where the hero might say, give me one good reason I shouldn't shoot you right now and the villain counters, I'll give you two, and gestures towards the henchmen who are holding guns on the twins. Let's call them Jason and Jennifer. No, daddy, no. If it's the DVD multi-pack of all that, you guys could keep it. Cause I'm just here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and the replacement UPS driver lost my bubblegum. Goddamn those scabs. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and he's on 87 of his mom's 100 uploaded pictures to Google Drive. We hear she'll never look at them, but that's okay. Joel Patterson's the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca almost never accesses Google Drive as the CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist, Peru and thanks for listening.